Good evening, everybody. It's, uh, I must say, uh, it's good to be back at the LSE. It was uh, actually in the LSE where UKIP was founded, because Dr. Alan Skinner, as he then was, uh, was the first leader of our party, and with whom we had our first internal civil war, uh, which was a sign that it really was a political party, I suppose. Uh, we've had very many since, uh, and UKIP, like all organisations, has had its ups and downs, uh, but for us, uh, the lifeblood of UKIP has been the European elections. You know, without the European elections, without getting three seats in 1999, uh, without getting the resources uh, that the European Parliament made available to us, um, I'm almost beginning to talk up the EU here, aren't I? Um, <laughs> it's marvellous, isn't it? Um, with, and without the letters MEP after our names, uh, you know, UKIP would never have appeared on Question Time or Any Questions or, you know, any of the major uh, media programmes in this country. So we have always taken the European elections desperately seriously uh, because without them and without proportional representation, UKIP never had a chance, frankly, of winning any elected representation in the House of Commons. But for the country, it's not been quite like that, because uh, whilst we joined the common market all the way back in 1973, and we had a vote on it, of course, in 1975, and I know to all the students here that sounds like ancient history, um, and it is. Even I was too young to vote. How about that? Uh, My parents both voted in that referendum, and, of course, sensibly, both voted yes because we're a family that's been involved in business and the proposal on the table was that we stayed part of something that would reduce tariff barriers, which have been a great scourge, really, ever since the Wall Street crash. The first directly elected MEPs, the first set were appointed. In 1974, we had appointed MEPs that went to Brussels and Strasbourg for five years and what very few people know is that one of the first appointed MEPs was, in fact, John Prescott. And Prescott's life started off there on the gravy train in Brussels. I'm not saying that's where he learnt croquet, because they don't do things like that, but never mind. And in 79, we had elections to the European Parliament, and we've had them every five years since. And frankly, most people in this country haven't even noticed they were happening. And the turnouts um, have consistently fallen since 1979. And indeed, in 1999, when I was first elected, the total turnout across the United Kingdom was 24%. And it didn't really matter uh, that Labour, at one point, had 60 MEPs and have collapsed down uh, to 13, the same as us. And it didn't really matter. The ups and downs of the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, didn't really matter. Occasionally, we've noticed uh, the elections. We noticed in 2004, uh, when a former daytime television presenter with a very good suntan got elected for UKIP, and that got a bit of publicity. Um, And we certainly noticed in uh, 2009 uh, when Nick Griffin um, and his mate, or ex-mate, Andrew Bronze, uh, got elected, and we noticed then. Uh, But really, the outcomes of the European elections haven't mattered very much. Uh, And I've certainly got friends in the Labour Party and Conservative Party, all of whom really wanted UKIP to do well in the European elections, um, and then then were very happy for us to do badly in subsequent general elections. And I think that has all changed this year. And it's changed because the European debate has changed. You know, most people in this country, and I've been banging on about this uh, ever since we joined the exchange rate mechanism in 1990, and I have to say generally, for most of the last 20 years, 
Um, if I was to raise the subject of Europe um, in my local pub, let's say, which I like to try and spend a bit of time in, um, and if I was to raise the subject of Europe, I'd say, oh, for Christ's sake, shut up, Nigel. You know, this is really boring. Um, and all my old friends in the city of London, you know, would invite me along to boardroom lunches after I'd been elected. And I was like the jester on the end of the table. They'd poke with a stick occasionally. Um, <laughs> and keep topping up the glass, and they would think, and they'd say, look, Nigel, you know, let's be frank. Uh, whilst we understand why you care about democracy and the British Constitution, uh, this is never going to affect us or our business in foreign exchange or equities or bonds or commodities. So the debate on Europe was seen to be something uh, suited for types that frequent the Oxford Union, um, suited for people like Bill Cash... You know, and I'm sure Bill was absolutely sincere in thinking that if the British public understood the implications of Article 136, subsection 2, clause 3, line 8, that if the British public really took that to their hearts, somehow there'd be an electrifying effect on the European debate in this country. And none of it happened. But that has all now changed. It's all changed because there is virtually nobody in this country engaged in the private sector and that doesn't matter whether they're running a shoe shop or a hardware store or whether they're running one of London's biggest equity brokers. There is now an understanding throughout the business community that whether you believe in the European project or not, it fundamentally matters to your business. And it matters because it has actually become almost irrelevant to most people in, in private business in this country whether we have a Conservative or a Labour government. It simply doesn't make any difference. You know, I spent 20 years working in the city, working on the London Metal Exchange, and working damned hard, by the way. Do you know, I used to work up until lunchtime every single day. <laughs> and I talked to my friends who are now engaged in that business, and they couldn't give a damn who wins the UK election. What they could give a damn about is who is the next European commissioner in charge of financial markets after Barnier, and who is going to be in charge of the three regulatory authorities that now have total control over what is Britain's biggest industry. So I think these elections matter to people in the private sector, to people in business, because they understand uh, that actually that's where nearly all of the laws and all of the rules emanate from. So I think it matters for that reason. And I think it matters uh, to ordinary folk out there who don't run their businesses. Uh, they probably have worked for big companies. Some of them might be long-term unemployed. And many of them uh, will actually be retired. Uh, but they ask themselves a the question, you know, why at a time when their local authorities are cutting various aspects of expenditure that they used to enjoy. Why are we giving £55 million a day to Brussels? And I know that uh, Lord Mandelson and others will tell you uh, what a marvellous investment it is and that actually it's only 1% of the British budget. But, you know, 1% here, 1% there, and soon we're talking real money. So people understand that actually it's really rather expensive in tough times to be part of that club. But the real reason, and perhaps uh, some would say the controversial reason, but the real reason that people have woken up, the mass of people have woken up, to why the EU matters, and whether they have a positive or negative view, as I say, isn't really the point, is that open-door immigration uh, really has let the scales fall from people's eyes. You see, in the first 20 years after we joined the common market, there were actually almost exactly the same number of German people in Britain and British people in Germany. And whilst we did see 
some migrations of labour, particularly the French, coming to the city of London in the 1990s, uh, we basically didn't really notice it. And the reason was that, of course, we have similar living standards, similar social security systems, similar health services. But when the doors were opened up in 2004 to the eight former communist countries in Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, it seemed pretty obvious to me that large-scale migration would occur. The government, of course, at the time, uh, predicted, if you remember, an extra 13,000 people a year, and I think 800,000 came in the first two years. Uh, And again, I think it's important to get some context on this. You know, this country has always been the most open-minded, the most accepting country of any other country in Europe when it comes to the question of immigration, and in particular, when it comes to the question of refugees. But that has changed. And what vast numbers of people, I mean, something like 78% now of the British population in consistent opinion polls say they want the levels of immigration reduced into this country. Over 50% in those polls want it reduced drastically. I mean, almost cut, you know, to zero. And there is a realisation that you cannot have your own immigration policy All the while, you stay members of the European Union. We cannot restrict the number of people that come here from Romania or Bulgaria. Or if, let us say, uh, some disaster occurred in the Eurozone, which I consider to be highly probable over the course of the next few years, we could not restrict a huge flow of people coming from Italy and Spain. Interestingly, it probably wouldn't be Italians and Spaniards that came. It would actually be Romanians, over a million of whom have already settled in Italy. So these elections matter because people realise that actually they're voting about something that matters and many of them have a strong feeling and a strong opinion. And what many of them, I think, resent is the fact that, frankly, we've been told a complete pack of lies by almost the entire career political class in this country for nearly four decades. They keep telling us, just don't worry your little heads, this is of no great constitutional importance. And that's made people angry. And the fact we haven't had a referendum on this has made people very angry, because we keep being promised one, don't we? You know, Blair promised referendums, the Lib Dems keep promising referendums, Dave, as he likes to be called, because he, he doesn't wear a tie, you know, and he's cool. And <laughs> Dave even gave us a cast-iron guarantee that if I become the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, there will be a referendum on the, on the Lisbon Treaty. And then, of course, he let us down like a cheap pair of braces. So, uh, people are a bit... Um, if anybody thought they were coming to a formal lecture, they really were wasting their time, weren't they? <laughs> the... So we are really cheesed off that time and again we keep being promised a referendum and it's not being delivered. And I think some people will actually choose to use these European elections in the absence of a referendum of their means of expressing the word no. So there are a lot of reasons why people will vote. And I think these elections really matter because I think they're going to have potentially a huge fundamental impact on British politics. Firstly on that question of a referendum. Dave, who spent most of 2011 um, and most of 2012 repeatedly saying in public that he did not believe there was any need 
for this country to have a referendum on its relationship with the EU unless something has fundamentally changed. In January of last year, his position shifted, and of course he gave that long-awaited speech um, that he gave uh, at Bloomberg in the city where he said that there would be a referendum, he'd always believed there should be a referendum, um, and that it would be an in-out referendum, if you remember the, the emphasis on that, thinking that he just shot UKIP's fox. So he's promised a referendum, and it would be very difficult, I think, if Dave was to win a majority... Now stop laughing up there at that idea. But if Dave was to win a majority, um, I think it would actually be quite difficult for him to weasel out of it this time round. I think the Conservative Party um, in the House of Commons is now in such a rebellious state um, that they, you know, he would not be able to backtrack on the promise. So for those of us that are in politics, uh, to make sure that things change, and given that that's our priority and not the success of our own party or careers, number one for me has always been getting back the independence, democracy and self-government of this country. The really vital thing is the Labour Party position on this. And I am going to make a prediction that if UKIP are able, and by the way, uh, Paddy Power tonight, well, I've got an account, you know... <laughs> But at Paddy Power tonight, UKIP are 10 to 11 to win the European elections. For those who don't gamble, that means we're now odds-on at the bookies to win the European elections. And whilst I'm uh, not going to get overly confident about this, because there is a hell of a lot to do, and you never know, you may find more UKIP people giving alternative weather forecasts that could cause us... (laughs) Funny, isn't it? When he was a Tory... When he was a Tory on Henley Town Council talking about, about weather events of biblical proportions, he didn't make the local newspapers. He joins UKIP, but it's top of the national news. But there we are. No, of course there are things that can go wrong. Uh, but I honestly, genuinely, sincerely believe that we have every possibility of topping the polls in those elections on May the 22nd in this country this year. And if we do that, <clears throat> and if we can demonstrate publicly what we already know privately... Namely, that we're eating into the Labour vote, and we're eating into the, certainly the non-vote as well, then I think these elections matter, because I believe that at the party conference season this year, we will be able to force Miliband into matching the promise of a referendum. And indeed, uh, we're going to be fighting the Sale, East and Withenshaw by-election very strongly with the message, you know, this Labour Party doesn't actually trust you to make your own minds up on this great question. Um, and it, I, I, th- I think that is something uh, that, Labour count- uh, that Labour canvassers are going to find tough to deal with on the doorstep. So I think, you know, a big UKIP win will shift the Labour Party's position and it'll mean that the two big parties will go into the general election pledging referendums that this time they will not be able to avoid. So that's important. But I also think that actually the political survival of some of the party leaders in this country could be affected by these European elections. Why do I say that? Well, in the the history of the Conservative Party, they have never come third in any national election. And according to the pollsters, they're on course to come third. Um, There is already, as I mentioned earlier, a state of rebelliousness on the Conservative backbenches on this issue. Now, if one thinks back to Maastricht, which was the last great Tory divide, open public divide on this issue... Things were bad at Maastricht 
when 26 Conservatives voted against the third reading and seven Conservatives abstained. So there were 35 die-hard rebels on the European question in John Major's time. It would appear there are now 95 if you believe there were that number of signatories uh, to the letter that Liam Fox put together. But by any measure, we've already seen up to 80 and more uh, Conservatives opposing Cameron in the House of Commons. So I think there is a feeling amongst, amongst sitting Conservative MPs, and certainly those whose seats are in the Midlands and the North, that they are beginning to get the feeling that unless something quite big changes that actually the Conservative Party is beginning to go in parts of the north of England the way that it's gone in Scotland. You know, hard to believe, isn't it? 1955, the Conservatives topped the polls. They got, they got the highest number of votes in Scotland and they disappeared over the course of the next 40 to 45 years. And there is something happening to that Tory vote in the north of England. I've spoken to Tory MPs in the north of England who know, unless something big changes, they're goners. And I would suggest that, this, that these elections matter uh, to Cameron. They matter because these elections will highlight that the strategy laid out and, and, and started with his speech last January isn't working. But it really matters to Cameron because if those people think that their leader does not look like any sort of potential winner, then I think the prospects of 46 signatures being gathered from the backbenches over the course of the summer months are perhaps rather higher than most commentators are currently giving it credit for. You know, if you really think you've got no chance of winning your seat, uh, then you'll believe that a change of leader perhaps is necessary. So the elections matter uh, for Cameron's future, and they certainly matter for Clegg's future. As you know, European elections, some are big constituencies with ten members of parliament, others are smaller constituencies with three members of parliament. But if you look at the predicted score for the Liberal Democrats in the European elections. They are on between 7 and 9%, depending whether it's a good day or a bad day. Let's say the Lib Dems polled 8% of the vote. That would probably return them one MEP. They're currently on 10. So they really are on a knife edge here. And there is a, there is a, a distinct possibility that the Liberal Democrats will get wiped out in these, in these European elections. And I think if that happens, then I think the Liberal Democrats will be looking for a new leader before the party conference season comes along. So these elections matter hugely to Clegg. Um, and it is to Clegg's credit, actually, uh, that he's decided to come out fighting. And already the literature that the Lib Dems are putting out for the European Parliament elections, for the first time, are actually saying, we, the Liberal Democrats, believe in Europe. We believe in this project. He hasn't actually said they want to join the Euro next Thursday. They've held back a bit on that one, even though, of course, they do. But full credit to Clegg, he intends to fight the election on an open, clear, honest manifesto. Um, and, and, and I do at least respect that. So they matter to Clegg. The elections matter a little bit less to Miliband. I don't think Labour doing badly uh, would cost Ed Miliband his job as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, but it may well make the Labour Party not look like winners, it may well mean they, 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 they seriously have not got the momentum uh, to hope to get much above 36, 37, maybe at best 38% in the general election. Um, and so perhaps uh, coalition is something uh, that might become a permanent feature in this country. So I don't think the result of the elections will mean that Clegg Sorry, that Miliband loses his job, but it certainly affects the prospects of the Labour Party of winning a majority. Uh, and lastly, and you might say, well, who gives a damn anyway, um, but uh, my future 
as leader of UKIP is pretty dependent on the course of these elections. Uh, in the sense that <coughs> I have for now nearly three years been very optimistically and very bullishly talking up UKIP's prospects. Uh, saying for the last three years that I believed there was a chance we could win the European elections, which initially, of course, was met with great guffaws of laughter, as most things that I say normally are. Uh, but now, if you believe Paddy Power, um, it's looking like a possibility. So there are some that see me as a bit of a gambler, and they're right. In a sense, I've taken all the assets of the party, and I've placed them on red. So red needs to come up, uh, and if UKIP was to do poorly... Um, and if UKIP was to trail uh, back into third place, then I think uh, that would be curtains for me as leader of UKIP. Whether that matters or not, I don't know. But these European elections matter. And they matter not just in this country, they matter across the European Union too. And one of my concerns is that the Eurosceptic argument across the continent is in great peril and is in great danger of being taken over by what we know as the far right... Although actually, in economic terms, they're all hardline statist socialists. You know, I do not want uh, the voice of Euroscepticism across Europe to be the voice that is led by Marine Le Pen um, or others far worse than her, Jobbik in Hungary or Attacker or any of these pretty ghastly parties. I think it is really, really important that the Eurosceptic voice is seen to be something that actually believes and embodies liberal democracy. Um, and I certainly... Uh, you know, do not want myself or UKIP or any of the Eurosceptic groups that I work with to be seen as anti-European. You know, we're not anti-European, for goodness sake. Do you know I'm married to a girl from Hamburg? You know, so no one needs to tell me about the dangers of living in a German-dominated Europe, all right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it goes further than that. You know, I, in business, I spent seven years working for a French bank, and I love France. You know, the fact they sacked me for insubordination, I've tried to forget and put behind me. <laughs> we don't hate Europe, but God, we hate that flag. And we hate that anthem. And I'm not so hot on Herman Van Rompuy either. <laughs> Europe is not a state. There is no desire anywhere in Europe for it to be a state apart from those that are in its employ or receive pension payments from it. And actually, the very concept of Europe has been taken and hijacked by those in Brussels for their own ends. We don't want flags, anthems or presidents, but we do want a Europe where we trade together, cooperate together, and where we're good neighbours with each other, recognising that with the French that won't always be easy. <laughs> but that's the kind of Europe that we want, and we had some great thinking on this after World War II. You know, the idea that there would be a Council of Europe, the idea there'd be a forum, a format, where we could sit down and intelligently discuss things. All of that makes perfect sense. And all of that I would want us to have. So I do not want these European elections to turn out to be seen to be a victory for, ex for extremism. That would be a disaster. I want these European elections, led by this country, uh, to be something that leads us into a referendum, to be something that leads us into what we'll have to do, which is Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, a negotiated, sensible withdrawal that happens within the space of a couple of years. And I want that, and I hope and believe, that that'll be the model for the rest of Europe to do the same thing too. And let's tear down 
these artificial structures and concepts of Europe that nobody has ever voted and no one wants for. And that's the message that many parties across Europe will be carrying into these European elections. And I'll be carrying the torch for UKIP in this country in these elections. These elections matter and we as a party are going to show you that. If we can increase the turnout from one in three to one in two, we will get back the independence of this country. And I want to motivate and mobilise everybody out there to put behind them, whether they're right wing, in the middle or left wing, to put all that behind them and to say, by lending their vote to UKIP in these elections, they can help contribute to an historic change in British politics. And I tell you what, I believe it's going to happen. Thank you. about right. So we're going to open up for questions. Um, We'll take two or three at a time. Uh, Please keep them to questions and not lectures from the floor. Um, I'm aware that's often the case at LSE public events. Short questions, please. Um, We'll take this one here first. There's a mic coming. Can you? The mic's coming. Please say who you are. Hi, I'm Sam. Do you want me to stand? No, that's fine. Okay. (laughs) I'll go on. (laughs) Um, Why do you think uh, all political parties are for the European Union? You know, are you missing a trick? Do you think? They can't all be crazy, surely. (laughs) Uh, This one down here. This mic coming this way. Thank you. My English is not very good. I'm from Italy. I am a professor, Giuseppe Paccione, and I am very happy to be here uh, to meet you finally face to face. Because uh, <laughs> I invite you to change my government, Italian government. Okay. Uh, I um, and I hope to do after uh, one photo with uh, Mr. Uh, Farage. Okay, my question is, uh, <laughs> yes, because I have many Italian friends and want uh, to see the photo with you. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I invite you to, I'm from South Italy, Apulia region, famous uh, California of uh, the Mediterranean area. And uh, I hope uh, invite, uh, uh, I hope, uh, oh, sorry, I invite you uh, to come uh, soon in Italy because uh, the, do you know that we have a Beppe Grillo movement, uh, movement of five yeah. stars, uh, Movimento Cinque Stelle, and uh, uh, Beppe Grillo said uh, it is necessary to exit uh, from Eurozone because uh, my, uh, because the Italian people are suffering. Uh, I arrived, for example, yesterday, and I see, I saw, sorry, uh, many, many Italian young people work here. Mm. And uh, our situation is very, very dramatical. The people, uh, no job, the people, no houses, and so Yes, the question, sorry. Okay. He does. Would I have a photograph with him? He's asked it already, you know. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What do you think about uh, the position uh, uh, of Beppe Grillo and the Movimento Cinque Stelle? And, uh, sorry, excuse me. I want one photo with you then. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's take one from upstairs, the top here. 
Thank you, Agnieszka Kolek, Polish Woman of the Year in the UK, uh, for organizing and curating Passion for Freedom Festival. I have a question to you. What do you think about British citizens joining jihad in Syria? Thank you. Right. Well, there we are. British citizens in jihad in Syria, uh, Pepe Grillo, and uh, well, all the other parties completely mad. <laughs> yeah. No, but I've often wondered, Sam, about this one. You know, um, uh, how could it be? How could it be uh, that I'm right and they're all wrong? Um, I, <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, this is not the first time it's happened. It's quite common, actually, for consensus groupthink to be wrong. Uh, perhaps the last time uh, we got it so wrong in British politics was in the 1930s. You know, when from 1933 onwards, most people in this country thought Hitler was a very good bloke. They've, con- they've conveniently forgotten that and buried that. But up to and including, you know, Lloyd George, the First World War uh, leader for the last couple of years, uh, members of the royalty, uh, indeed a future king, uh, several newspaper proprietors thought Hitler was a good bloke. And there was much of what Hitler was doing that actually uh, we ought to be doing in this country. And after about 1936, they didn't think he was a good bloke, but they thought we could contain him. So, you know, consensus is being wrong on things is not unusual. But the real reason for it is, it, it is the power of the status quo. You know, it is easier to go along with things rather than try to overturn things and upset the apple cart. And, I, and it's one of the things that perhaps has frustrated me so much are the number of members of parliament I've met over the last 20 years who say, Nigel, I agree with absolutely every word you say. You know, absolutely, power to your old day. And you say, well, why don't you say so? Oh, well, that'll be a bit difficult, you know. I might get deselected, I might lose my job. So it is the power of the status quo. Um, and, and, and they have been able, uh, the pro-EU consensus have been able to ridicule the anti-EU argument and the, and the anti-EU movement in this country, albeit we've given them more help than they needed at times. Um, but I think uh, that consensus is now fracturing and breaking, and we are beginning to see, I think, one of those very rare shifts in the tectonic plates of politics in this country. But never underestimate the power of the status quo. And it doesn't just happen in politics, it happens in business, it happens in science, it's happened all through history. You know, so hopefully um, that what UKIP can do is to f- sort of fulfil the role of the little boy in the Hans Christian Andersen story saying the emperor has got no clothes. Uh, that at least I hope. Now, Italy. Well, what better example? What better example could there be of just how rotten the European Union is and what depths it's prepared to sink to to defend itself than what happened three years ago in Italy? Mr Berlusconi, as Prime Minister, was probably past his sell-by date. Um, He was, I was going to say politically impotent, but that wouldn't be the right word to use um, about Mr Berlusconi, I don't think. Um, I won't say that, because that would be awkward. Um, So Mr Berlusconi uh, said in public that he now doubted whether joining the Euro had been a good thing for Italy. They had him out within 48 hours. The unholy alliance that runs the European Union, and that is big bureaucracy, big business and big banks, had him out within 48 hours. Gone. And replaced with an unelected Prime Minister and former Goldman Sachs employee. That tells me as much as I need to know about the European project. You know, if we'd had dinner 
10 years ago and said this might happen at some point in the future, I'd have been sort of put away from my own safety uh, because it would be almost unimaginable that the union could sink to such depths. As for Beppe Grillo, what I would say is it's quite difficult to tell who the comedians are these days, really, isn't it? Um, I, I have to say I think his five-star movement is really interesting. Um, I, I know his, his, um, his concerns about Italy being in the Euro. I know he's pushing hard for a referendum. I think, it, I think Italian politics, which is always quite volatile and changeable, I think it's much more difficult to predict what will happen in the European elections in Italy than it is what will happen in the European elections in this country. Um, and without wishing to uh, you know, tie my flag to any one particular Italian political party, um, you know, I wish people like Beppe Grillo uh, and those that want a bit of you know, proper choice in democracy all the very best. I suspect Grillo is going to come back with a very large number of MEPs after the elections. Will you keep sit with him? Well, as I said, I'm not, you know, before the elections, going to say who we, who we will sit with, who we won't sit with. Um, but um, I, I personally uh, happen to think uh, that what Grillo is offering is really interesting and really different. And he's doing it from, from a pretty centrist, you know, whatever his own politics, he's doing it from a pretty centrist position in an attempt to bring people together around what is a fundamental issue. And, you know, if you've lost the ability to control your currency and interest rates and everything else, uh, that is pretty fundamental. Thank goodness we didn't listen to the Ken Clarks and the Peter Mandelsons and the Nick Cleggs. And thank goodness we stayed out of the euro. Uh, it would have been a very bad mistake. Uh, the uh, lady at the back asked how I felt about British citizens uh, going to take part in jihad in Syria. Well, I'm not for it, OK? <laughs> I'm not for it. I, uh, I think it is, uh, it is absolutely uh, disturbing, disturbing that that is happening. And, and one of the things that I am hopeful, albeit it'll be in a small way, but at least it'll be a start, one of the things I'm hopeful for is that UKIP can play some contribution to this argument as well. The number two on our list in Yorkshire is a lifelong, practising, Pakistan, Bradford-raised Muslim businessman. Uh, I've been with him uh, to, his, his, to his mosque. I've, I've met uh, his elders. I've talked to them. And uh, when Amjad becomes uh, a UKIP MEP in May, uh, you know, he will campaign and fight hard for Muslims in this country who want to be integrated and part of British society and respect our values to start being a bit more voluble and a bit, uh, and, and a bit more vociferous. And I think the more of that we have, the better, frankly. Thank you. OK. So it's a, this question down here. Um, you said that UKIP won't have a manifesto until after the 2014 elections. What do you stand for in terms of policy... Um, within the UK, do you still believe in scrapping paid maternity leave, for example? Okay. Where do you stand on policy in the UK? Question at the back here, gentlemen in the red jumper. Hello, my name is Martin. I'm uh, German and um, I'm a student at LSE. Uh, for the record, I don't uh, get pensions from Brussels, um, neither do I intend to do so in the at least near future. Um, <laughs> I vote for a party in Germany that in 1925 uh, wrote in their party program that they envision a United States of Europe. Um, I still vote for the party, and there are others, so I just wanted to come get that across. Um, and my question would be, because one of the reasons that I think people do vote for, uh, for such ideas, or would also vote for such ideas in case there would be a referendum, 
is the fact that the world has changed and uh, nation states, at least in Europe, um, might uh, and in the future will definitely not have the same impact um, compared to uh, the rising stars in the East, uh, compared uh, to Brazil, China, India. And my question would be, uh, in terms of foreign policy, uh, do you really think nation states still have the power in Europe individually to contest uh, that changing environment? Let's have one from upstairs. Huge, huge at the front here. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm an undergraduate student here at the LSE. I wanted to know, what are you personally doing to get rid of the bigotry and homophobia in your party in the UK? Okay. All right, three questions there. Um, uh, general election manifesto. Let's be clear, no party in Britain has a general election manifesto. All right? And what I was trying to make clear on television today is that I want to keep the debate about UKIP focused on the European questions uh, and, and, and the subsequent effects on British life ahead of May the 22nd, and not to distract things by announcing you know, that we think this should be cut and that should be increased. Uh, basically, uh, we got the manifesto question wrong as a party in 2010, and what happened was a whole series of policy papers appeared on a website on our website, um, masquerading as a manifesto. It was 486 pages long. Um, so it wasn't really a manifesto. We didn't get it right. What we will campaign for in terms of domestic policy is we will go on campaigning for increased social mobility, um, and that means recognising that the 7% of people in this country who go through the private public school system uh, now have advantages, advantages in society and now dominate our lives... In, and not just in politics or the media or business, but even you know, over half our gold medal winners had been to you know, those private schools. And nothing wrong with those private schools being brilliant, that's great, uh, but it's about time we started to make sure uh, that a lot more kids from working class backgrounds who haven't got rich parents have the same academic opportunities as those that are paid for. And we can see no alternative but the reintroduction of what we used to call grammar schools, let's call it state selection, uh, to actually make sure people have got the prospects to get on. That's just one area, and something that we feel very strongly about. Fundamental reform of the tax system, which is overly complicated, um, and, and, and Ian Duncan Smith is heading in the right direction with some of his ideas, but it is ludicrous that anybody in Britain pays income tax if they're earning the minimum wage. You know, these are huge disincentives to get people back to work. So, you know, a lot more work to be done on that stuff, but that's the kind of direction uh, that we're going to take things in. You, do you think of yourselves as to the right of the Conservatives in general when it comes to the general election? Well, I think, you know, we, we, some of the stands that we've taken, for example, against the European arrest warrant, uh, believing that habeas corpus, the presumption of innocence before guilt, and your right to be judged uh, by a jury, um, and these are things we fought very, very hard on, um, is that right-wing or left-wing? Well, it's sort of classical liberalism, isn't it, really? So I think, actually, it's quite difficult to pigeonhole much of what UKIP stands for in terms of traditional right-left uh, divisions. Um, our German friend is a believer in the United States of Europe. Well, that's fine. That's fine. You're absolutely... And, and, and it's, you know, great. If that's what you believe in, that's marvellous. Um, and, and, and I would recommend that you do get a job after university working for the European institutions. Uh, because you, sir, whether you like it or not, find yourselves in a tiny, tiny minority. You know, there are very, very few people across Europe that want the United States of Europe. And I would just say this to you, that actually, if you attempt to impose a new sense of nationhood 
upon the diverse peoples of Europe against their will, far from that being a recipe for peace and loveliness, it is actually something that will lead to extreme nationalism, unpleasantness and violence. So you know, you're, you're, you're fully entitled to want a United States of Europe, but you and, and your mates in the, in the political class in Brussels are not entitled to attempt to impose it upon, uh, impose it upon people against their will. All right? That's the point. Um, uh, Joe, um, up at the top there. Um, he's in the pound seats up there, isn't he? Um, Joe asked the question, what am I doing about bigotry, etc., etc.? Um, I have to say this. If you set up any new organisation particularly voluntary organisation, um, and you appeal to people and say, please come and join us, please come and help us, uh, you will attract, necessarily, all sorts of flotsam and jetsam, and you will get some people who come into your organisation trying to use it um, as a means to push their own hobby horses. All right? we've, you know, we've seen loads of that. Um, and in many parts of the country, there's a UKIP meeting, you turn up, um, you say you'd like to volunteer uh, to, 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 to be an officer with a local branch and your branch chairman within 10 minutes. Uh, and the fact is, you know, you've not been vetted, uh, you've not been checked. So we've been through all sorts of teething problems like that. Um, I don't want UKIP to be a party that doesn't believe in free speech. I do. I don't want UKIP to go down the new Labour approach of 97, where, you know, we wear pages on our belts and we're told what to say and what to think. I want it to be a party of open debate. I'm quite happy for it to be a party where sections of our elected representatives disagree with things I say. All of that is healthy and fine, but I don't want, I, I don't want it to be a party uh, that goes around deliberately attempting to offend large sections of the community. So what I have done to try and insulate us and protect us from people like that and from giving the wrong impression of UKIP is I'm the only, we are the only party in Britain that actually, for example, bans people who've ever even been members of the BNP from becoming a member of UKIP. You know, if you were an ex-BNP member and you want to join the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or the Tories, you can do so. You're unlikely to get a plum safe seat at the general election, but I've even, you know, I've even gone as far as to change our party constitution to exclude people who've previously been part of extremist groups from joining us. And everyone that uh, joins UKIP and signs up on ukip.org, you can all do it, it's terribly easy. Um, uh, in fact, we've got a special rate for students. Um, and, and, uh, and it's half price until tomorrow. I mean, anyway, I'll stop doing that. Um, I've given up being a salesman. It was rather fun, though, when I did it. Um, you know, so I've done everything I can to try and protect us and insulate us from being hijacked and taken over by extremist groups. I think it is to the uh, huge disappointment of the political class in Britain and astoundment of Messrs Barroso and Van Rompuy. You know, they really want UKIP to be this hard, extreme, right-wing, let's bring back the birch, um, and etc. type party. And to their disappointment, we're not. We're a party based in liberal democracy. Now, the one thing I'll say, I mentioned it earlier, you know, this councillor who talked about the floods, when he was a Tory saying it, no one covered it. When he's UKIP, they have covered it. And I, I would say this, the voluntary section of UKIP is being put under more media scrutiny than has ever happened to any political party in this country before. So it's tough for us. Out of a membership of 33,000, you're going to find some people that say extreme things, but I absolutely, hand on heart, look you in the eye and say, this is not an extreme political party. It is a party that believes in British and European democracy, and it's a party, actually, that most people can see is full of reasonable, decent men and women.
Question. Back here. The mic's coming. Please take the microphone so we can hear you. Mr. Farage, you, you use the phrase a complete pack of lies. Yes. But aren't you in I should have gone further, really. A trading in untruths and deceit. Every time you're on the media, you're always talking about the European Commission as if they make policy. They do not make policy. It's the three regulatory authorities that you talked about. The, European, the, the Council of Ministers, the, the um, European Council and the Parliament. It is not the uh, European Commission. You trade. I'm afraid it is old son, but anyway. Ignorance. You do it all the time. I, and I'm going to go on doing it, yeah. On the media. Yeah, why absolutely. Don't you start, why don't you say you will be honest with the people of this country and tell them how the European Commission, how, how the Europe works? Don't mm. trade on their ignorance. I admit that the, the vast population in this country is ignorant about Europe. But you just trade on that. What I'll do, you sir, know, I, and, I, a, and let me take this question. Let me take this question. I absolutely... I absolutely promise you, sir, I absolutely promise you that I will go on, and you've, and you've actually g me up now um, and encouraged me, and I will go on and I will make sure now that I mention the European Commission in every single media interview I do... <laughs> between now and May the 22nd, because the European Commission, sir, is the government of Europe. The government of Europe. And they, they, and they, they have the... Can I finish? They have the sole right... Well... Well, I tell you what, I mean, if this is wrong, if I'm wrong about this, then you're very lucky, sir. Because it's all on camera and I should be ruined. All right? <laughs> so let's try again, shall we? Don't bother. There we are. Spoken like a true Europhile. I believe in what I believe in. Forget the facts. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> what? There's a microphone coming around. It's gingering up now, isn't it? Warming up nicely, yes. Uh, hi. The German bloke up there asked yeah. a really interesting question, and you seem to just ignore it. He was actually asking whether or not you think Britain can compete against the BRIC countries alone, okay. or whether it needs Fine. to be in a Fine. union Fine. to do Fine. this. Fine. So I mean, this is the trouble with bulking up questions, is we get very interesting questions that all need proper answers. I merely talked about the United States. But his, yes, he did raise the point. Um, can nation states, can you, 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 you were quite specific. You said, can European nation states, um, can they survive and compete in the modern globalised world? That basically is what is the question you were asking. On their own as if it's some dreadful thing to be on your own, you know, and not governed by Rumpy Pumpy and all that lot. Um, the, the, it really is interesting that in an increasingly globalised world where Europe, the European continent, the European Union, um, its share of global GDP is falling quite quickly. When we joined the common market, it was over 40% of global GDP was actually in, you know, those big European countries. Um, it is now, it's arguable, but let's say 18%. Uh, predicted to be 10% or less by 2025. 
So there's a very, very big shift going on in the world as power, influence and wealth is shifting from west to east. All of which says to me, as somebody that used to be a trader and broker and market maker and various things over the years, that it's very, very important that we are hooked in and have good relationships with the emerging markets of the world. All right? Uh, And we find ourselves actually forbidden, it's an extraordinary concept, but forbidden from making our own trade relationships with any other part of the world. When the World Trade Organization meets, uh, the British representatives are shown the door. And despite the fact we're the sixth biggest trading nation on the globe, we're not allowed to even take part in world trade talks. We have to leave the room. Switzerland has more trade deals with the 30 biggest economies in the world outside the EU. Switzerland has more trade deals with them than we do. Iceland has a population of 320,000 people. It's a pretty small nation-state. And they've just signed, March of last year, their own trade agreement with China. If a country the size of of Iceland, with 320,000 people, can make its own way, negotiate its own pacts in terms of global trade, I'm damn certain that a country of 63 or 64 million people uh, with a history of trading globally can do so. And I do honestly believe that, that one of the arguments here uh, that really matters is we as a party need to tell people less what's wrong with the European Union, even though the Commission is disgusting, I agree with you. Um, but we, but we, need, we need to start telling people about the opportunity cost we're losing by being stuck inside a union that is prohibiting us from playing our full part in global trade. All right, I hope that answers both of those but questions. But you, aren't you, con- I mean, abusing my position of the chair yeah. here, but... Well, go on then. <laughs> You know, what do you feel about the fact that many other regions in the world look jealously at the European single market and they'd love to set up their own regional, their, their own markets on a continental scale, whether it's ASEAN or, or Latin America or Central America or the Middle East. They would love to have a market on a continental mm. scale like Europe and a set of institutions that can properly govern yeah, the market like the EU does. Well, that's what, I mean, that's what political classes do. I mean, don't forget, the Swiss political class would love Switzerland to join the European Union. The Norwegian political class would love Norway to join the European Union. Um, and there are many in Europe and around the rest of the world who actually don't want the European Union. They want global government um, and one world single currency. So there are all sorts of people in government and in career politics that want these sort of things. Uh, but actually, actually, it's interesting. I mean, one and talks... Businesses, not but, just but, politicians. Well, big businesses, the multinationals, of course, love the European Union. It's fantastic, isn't it? They can go with the Commission... Um, they can go with the Commission and actually draft the laws for their own industry... And it's all done in secret. It's not subject to any uh, degree of public vetting at all. And they can do that and actually stop uh, entryism and stop competition from small and medium-sized competitors. So I can see why the multinationals like this model of government um, and actually would like it in other countries. But I think a bigger and more interesting point, actually, you know, getting back perhaps to um, the question that kicked off this uh, round of debate, um, is that far from the nation-state being some sort of ancient relic of the old days, actually, globally, nation-states are trendy. And every single year that goes by, there emerge more and more nation-states. There are nearly four times the number of nation-states in the world now than there were in 1945. So actually, the world is breaking down into smaller, self-governing, democratic blocks as people express their rights as, as they feel it of self-determination. So you'd vote yes in a Scottish independence referendum? Well... Why would I do that? If I was, 
if I was a Scottish voter, if I was a Scottish voter and I felt Scottish, yes. But I'm not a Scottish voter, I, and, I, and I don't have a say. And actually, what Salmond is offering uh, is neither. Is, 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 uh, Salmond's offering nothing. What I just did, I said I'd vote yes if I was Scottish and felt Scottish. But Salmond is not offering independence. Salmond is offering divorce from Westminster, but to stay part of the Brussels club. And that is not independence that he's offering. Okay, question here. Chat with the glasses. No, behind him. <laughs> They've all got glasses. <laughs> I'm Joel Rosen. I'm an undergraduate student at the Department of Government. Um, so we heard just a couple of weeks ago that you announced a surprising policy on letting in immigrants from or migrants, refugees from Syria. The different things, yeah. So, yes, um, which is exactly what I wanted to ask you on. So what exactly is your immigration policy at the moment? So, for example, if you came to power, if it was your Britain, who would you let in and who wouldn't you let in? I think, I think it's high time. I, I think, you know, we sort of adopted this phrase asylum seeker um, uh, which sort of came in in the 80s and 90s um, and was a term in fact that was being used by some um, as as a rather pejorative expression for whole groups of people Um, and we've forgotten who we are we've forgotten what our values are we've forgotten what British values are there would not have been I don't think at any stage in the last couple of centuries any debate about what was happening in Syria um, and the fact that we would do something We can't solve the entire problem, but we would have done at any point in the last couple of centuries something to help some of those people from Syria. But, of course, we've forgotten what our British values are. Uh, We've given away our immigration policy in terms of being able to decide the numbers of people that can come and live, work and settle in Britain. And because the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are so terrified of the electorate's anger over what's happened with, with, with an irresponsible number of people coming from Eastern Europe. Now what they try and do is try and be as beastly as possible to anybody coming from Eastern Europe, um, or at least say they are in public, uh, and, and, and turn their backs on, on a refugee stance that, that anybody would have taken over time. So that's one of the reasons why. I think it's only by having back control of our immigration system can we reassert genuine, proper, historic British values. As far as our immigration system is concerned, there is a big mess to sort out. We've no idea how big the scale of illegal immigration is in this country. You know, we are in a hell of a mess over this. But can I just say, longer term, once that mess is sorted out, I think to define UKIP's immigration policy is dead easy. We want an immigration system based uh, very much on another English-speaking country in this world, Um, And that country says, we welcome immigrants to our country. Uh, We want people who've got skills. We want people who will benefit us. Uh, We want people who haven't got serious criminal records. Although in the case of Australia, that used to be a prerequisite, of course. (laughs) Um, and, And, you know, John Howard, when he was the Premier, said, we don't care where you're from. We don't care what your religion is. We don't care what the colour of your skin is. What we care about is that when you come here and join us, you become part of our Australian dream. And that seems to me to be the kind of positive immigration policy that Britain wants. And if we operated something sensible and managed along these lines, the vast, vast majority of the British population would support it wholeheartedly. Okay, question here. Hello. Um, do you ever see UKIP converging with the Conservative Party? <coughs> <laughs> Not all the wild Daves there, no. Um, No, I mean, Mr Cameron is obviously a 
you know, very great man in many ways, and, and I don't think he would ever um, sink to the depths of talking to the lower orders like us. So I, I think that all the while um, he is, uh, all, all, all the while he's in charge, I would have thought the prospects of any conversation uh, with the Conservative Party were pretty limited. Um, I think the prospects of conversations happening between UKIP and any other parties ahead of the 2015 general election are pretty unlikely. Um, I think the prospects of UKIP having a conversation with other parties post the 2015 general election may possibly be greater than most people in this country at the moment think. It all depends really how we do in the elections of 2014. If UKIP does win the European elections and if we do get some real momentum behind the party, if we're then able to do what Paddy Ashdown did with the Liberal Democrats, to think and target intelligently on where, we've, on where we're strong, to build on areas where we've already won under first post the post on uh, district council elections, uh, county council elections or unitary uh, elections, uh, then I think the prospect of getting a reasonable, realistic number of UKIP MPs into Westminster is there. And I suspect that's when uh, we'll have talks with maybe the Conservatives or maybe Labour or who knows. So you wouldn't envisage perhaps a Conservative UKIP election pact to stop a pro-European Lib Lab coalition? Well, I said to you earlier, or in fact, I didn't. I didn't. I said it in my talk. I said that one of the things I want to achieve in 2014 is I want to get Labour uh, into the position where they promise to have a referendum too, which would neutralise some of those rather silly arguments. OK. General Downey has been waiting very patiently. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, your, early, your opening remarks uh, prompt me to ask you uh, what your thoughts are on extending the proportional system which you accredit through your earlier success uh, to uh, Westminster. But my main con- consideration yeah, is... Sorry. <laughs> sorry. My main uh, consideration is Margaret Thatcher's speech in Bruges when she spoke about independent, sovereign states. Do you share that vision? Okay. Um, You know, the first past the post system works fantastically when you have two parties, or maybe even two and a half parties. The first past the post system does not work uh, when you have an increased fragmentation and change in politics. I think the first past the post system is desperately out of date, um, and whereas uh, the elderly uh, generation who are socialists living in Isha will still uh, go down on a rainy Thursday afternoon. Um, and put their cross by the Labour Party because they believe that voting really matters, uh, their grandchildren say, I'm a Labour supporter. What's the blooming point of engaging here in Isha? Uh, rather like if you're sort of high Tory in Sheffield, I suppose. Um, so I think that the, amongst the younger generation, I think the cynicism about the first past the post system is so total uh, that we've got something like 60% of under-30s did not vote in the last general election. So we have to modernise our system to reflect changing times. The disappointment to me was that the Liberal Democrats, having campaigned for PR for so many years, um, settled for this dog's dinner called AV, which wasn't even proportional, it was preferential. I mean, they wait all those years to get into government and then blow it. So whilst I did my bit and appeared on platforms with Eddie Izzard and people like that. Um, and I, and I, did, uh, I did support, uh, you know, a yes vote, the, 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 the vote for AV. Um, it seemed to me that if you can't describe simply in a sentence why it's a better system than what we've got, um, it wasn't going to happen. I personally think that AV Plus 
is the right system. And, inter- and, it, and it, interestingly, you know, the Jenkins Commission, perhaps anything Roy Jenkins ever did that I agree with, you know, but, 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 but the, you know, the Jenkins Commission, after a lot of work, came up with AV Plus has the advantages uh, that it maintains the constituency link between the man or woman and the town, and that's the first past the post bit. And with AV Plus, with that second ballot, if you're the socialist living in Isha, age 22, you still think it's worth going down on a rainy Thursday afternoon because you can still put your vote towards something that will get elected representation. So, yes, I think that needs to happen. Uh, do I think Margaret Thatcher's brew speech um, about a Europe of independent, sovereign nation-states was the right one? Yes, I think she was right. I think de Gaulle's instincts were right as well. Um, uh, but I have to say that uh, this European uh, project has now been going for so long that the idea that David Cameron is going to go to Brussels and they're all going to say, do you know what, Prime Minister? We've had this wrong for half a century. Why don't we deregulate everything and give lots of power back to the nation state? It isn't going to happen. Um, and the, the very thought uh, that he is going to fundamentally renegotiate Britain's position when he's already said that whatever the outcome of the negotiations, he will still support Britain staying inside the European Union, frankly, is laughable. It is no more than an attempt to kick the thing, to kick the thing into the long grass post the election. Let's take some from upstairs. Right at the back. Hi, um, I'm Romanian. That's all that matters for Mr Farage. <laughs> ah. Are you playing benefits? As you admitted earlier, Yukio has no coherent ideological policy. You, you, you can't classify it on the left or the right. Your, your main two issues are uh, Europe and immigration, and in my opinion, you're a far-right party on both issues. Okay. Uh, but, but my, my question is for Mr. Oh, you've got Mr. One. Hicks. Why, why are you chairing this event tonight? Why am I chairing this event? <laughs> Well, I mean, the European elections are coming up. I think there's one thing that we do agree on, which is that it's important to people vote in these elections, that they are very important elections, that I do agree we should have a referendum in the UK. I do agree that PR for the House of Commons, I disagree with pretty much everything else, but... um. Can I, please, can I ask you a question? Do you approve of the um, racial discrimination uh, that goes on in Romania? Because I've been to Romania and seen it, and it's on a scale that to us is unimaginable. And how, how are you improving the situation there? Well, well, by saying, by saying, by saying, by saying from the start that we should never have given the riches to Romanians um, when, you, when you think about the civil servants, when you think about the politicians, now, I mean, literally, joining the EU for them has been hitting the jackpot financially. They're now all rich men and women, and I think to have allowed Romania into a political union with us whilst they treat the Roma in the most appalling, discriminatory way is something that we should hang, hang our heads in shame over. We should not have allowed it to happen. Next one here. Thanks very much. Uh, Maurice Fraser, I'm a professor here at the LSE. Um, Mr Farage, at the next election, you know that in every marginal constituency, every Conservative candidate is going to go up and down <coughs> saying, vote UKIP, get Labour. And um, are you comfortable with that prospect? Because I can assure you there are millions of centre-right voters who are not desperately comfortable with that prospect. That is the Conservative slogan. 
Um, that is what they repeat over and over and over. I'm sure they wake up in the morning saying, vote UKIP, get Labour, um, convincing themselves that they must absolutely believe that. Um, interesting, isn't it? That of the opinion polling done of UKIP people in the marginal constituencies, when that proposition is put to them, actually, uh, nearly 60% of UKIP voters say, couldn't care less. Now, even if my vote means Labour win, I couldn't care less. And there is actually a fundamental misunderstanding uh, that is going on within the political class and the commentariat, though it's changing. It's changing. The misunderstanding is they think that all Conservative voters are very hacked-off right-wing retired colonels, all of whom would be Conservative if it wasn't for the fact that UKIP existed. And actually, it's very interesting. If you look at the polling from lots of companies, and especially very specific polling in some of the marginal constituencies, only a third of the UKIP vote voted Conservative at the last election. Only a third. So if you start to do the numbers, uh, you start to realise that the reason Cameron isn't going to win the next election with a majority is not because of UKIP, it's because he himself has alienated himself from millions of traditional centre-right Conservative voters. So I, you know, I just don't buy this. And, and, and really, uh, the thing that has got everybody uh, flummoxed uh, beyond the point of comprehension, is that 20% of the UKIP vote is coming from non-voters. 20% of it's coming from non-voters. And when you look at, you know, South Shields and Barnsley and Middlesbrough, and I could go on with parliamentary by-elections in rock-solid Labour seats, where UKIP has come second in all of them, we got 25% of the vote in South Shields there aren't that many Conservatives in the whole of the northeast of England. You know, we were digging very hard into, into traditional, patriotic, old Labour votes. So I think this, this vote uh, UKIP, get Labour thing in the marginal seats, I think we will prove and show that that simply, by the time 2015 comes along, isn't right. Question right in the middle here. A mic to the gentleman in the middle. Uh, Peter McLaughlin, retired international business manager. Imagine, Mr Farage, that you win your bet with Paddy Power <laughs> and you are the biggest uh, party after the uh, European elections. And imagine that the arguments regarding Europe for the referendum in or out uh, take the course they did in the 70s and gradually people vote in favour of it. And then Turkey's interminable negotiations come up for to fruition and their accession is requested. Would you vote for Europe to be in Turkey? Is Turkey a European country? Okay. Well, actually, it's very interesting. I, um, I had the chance to question the Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan on Wednesday of this week. Uh, he came for a meeting in Brussels. It's called the Conference of Presidents, which sounds rather grand. It's amazing they let me in the room, really. Um, and so there were seven of us, had an hour or so with Erdogan, and we asked a series of questions. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I said to the Turkish Prime Minister, I said, you know, I find it very difficult to understand why a country, 98 percent of which is landmass is in Asia, uh, should be joining something called Europe. Um, I said to him, but actually, from what I could understand from my former business colleagues, and I did a lot of business in Istanbul, uh, a lot of business in Istanbul, when I had a proper job before politics, unlike everybody else, um, I said, and what I'm getting from my business contacts in Istanbul, actually, is that in many ways, Turkey has the kind of relationship with the EU that the British want. And why don't we do a swap? Because we find ourselves 
you know, up to here, uh, unable to, 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 to change the course of many laws that we don't like, incapable of making our own arrangements in an increasingly globalised world with trade. Turkey has full access to the European single market, or call it whatever you want to call it. You know, Turkey can sell her goods or buy her goods from the European Union countries without being a member of the political union. And the interesting thing is this. I said, actually... Uh, Prime Minister Erdogan, I think it's in your interests to keep things as they are and not to join the European Union. And I could see his finance minister, who was sitting next to him, he shouldn't have done, but he was nodding. And Turkish business, Turkish business, they're not stupid, they're in a very, very good position. Woman at the back here. On the back row. Hello, I'm a Greek journalist. Um, uh-huh. You know that you Greek people have a lot of, sy- of sympathy for you because you attack the Prime Minister and the austerity measures that Troika imposes in the country. But um, on the one hand, you called he, the, pre, the Prime Minister's party, which is called New Democracy, you called it No Democracy. I did, yeah. And on the other hand, in an interview you gave... <coughs> You call the fact that Greece has taken the EU presidency is for laughs. So what exactly do you find funny about Greece taking the EU presidency? And um, do you find this uh, fair for the Greek people? Well, uh, where, because for the, I country, have to say, it's people. It's, I have to say, you when, agree with it. When Herman Van Rompuy was anointed... As the president of Europe, this grand global figure that we were promised, um, I had automatically assumed that the rotating six-month presidencies of the council would disappear, because now we had, I was told, a permanent president. So it's to my utter astonishment that not only do we have Van Rompuy, and he's now building a great big palace for himself um, just, off, just, just opposite the Berlimont, uh, but that actually this farce of the rotating six-month presidencies happens as well. So, I, 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 you know, the whole thing is a nonsense. No sooner have they got their feet under the table uh, when it's time for the term to end. Um, and I think to think that a country suffering as badly as Greece is, having made the catastrophic historical error, I mean, albeit, you know, the Greek politicians were rather conned into it by Goldman, their advisers, um, but, 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 but for a country that's in a mess that it's in, to be president, seen to be the president in office of the European Council at the time of the European elections, I think there's a certain sense of irony to that. Um, and I wasn't saying that in any, in any, in any derogatory way. And I would say this to you, it's not so much a question of Greek people having sympathy for me, I've got huge sympathy for the people of Greece because they are trapped inside something that I think is bound to get worse, not better. So you don't find democratic as as the EU presidency is rotating for Greece because it is its turn to take it, that it has to be taken by Greece. You don't find this democratic. Well, I don't think the idea of rotation of anything is democratic. No, not particularly. Um, all I'm pointing out is it's very ironic. It's very ironic. It's very ironic that Greece is there at this time. But you never know. Maybe the presidency of the country that invented democracy will herald a set of European elections that will bring back national democracy. And if that happens, we'll be very grateful to the Greek presidency. Can you take a couple more? A couple more, yeah. In the middle here. He's been waiting very patiently. 
Thank you very much. My name's Ed, and um, I'd like to ask how you think that the recent opening of borders to Bulganian, Bulganians, um, Bulgarians um, will affect your current and future support? Well, I think that, um, I think that we, uh, to a very large extent, have won the argument with the British people that it is irresponsible just to unconditionally open up your borders to countries that are considerably poorer than you are. You know, I mean, even, even the great free marketeers, like Milton Friedman, didn't think these sort of things were a good idea. So I think we've won that argument. Um, it was terribly funny. I mean, imagine coming to Britain and meeting Keith Vaz. I mean, it's pretty serious, isn't it? You know. Um, I, I thought the, co- you know, the coverage of it's been farcical. I mean, you would think that, you know, Tens of thousands were queuing to come on day one. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you know, the intelligence I get from Gatwick is that you know, people are coming at a, at, at a pretty steady pace. There are 7,000 seats on aeroplanes from those countries to Britain every week. So if people want to come in big numbers, they can do so by pre-booking you know, relatively cheaply. Uh, whether, whether we get a huge number of Romanians and Bulgarians before May the 22nd or not, I have no idea. But the point I've made with this right from the start is why take the risk? And I think, I think frankly, uh, the British people are astonished that we're entering into agreements like this. So I don't really think whether, you know, it's 500 or 15,000 that have come before May the 22nd actually directly has a bearing on how well or badly UKIP does in those European elections. If you believe we should control our own borders and have a responsible immigration policy, uh, then actually you recognise the fact we can't do it as EU members and therefore uh, voting UKIP on May the 22nd is your best way of expressing that. You've described yourself a couple of times tonight as a classical liberal. As a classical liberal, don't you think that the free movement of people in Europe is a phenomenal achievement? I just explained to you. I just explained to you. I just explained to you, even the classical liberal Milton Friedman did not think that free movement of peoples between rich and poor countries was a good or sensible thing to do. I quite agree with you. Free movement, I mean, because we had free movement 100 years ago. There were no restrictions at all. We could all, you know, work and settle and do whatever we wanted. Um, But, I mean, there is no question that free movement of people, getting back to where we were, if you like, uh, with France and Germany and countries like that, uh, posed no difficulty to us whatsoever because we were countries with relatively similar standards. But when you let in countries whose minimum wage are 10% of what your minimum wage is, you're obviously going to have a problem. I just thought that was plain common sense, and yet I found myself uh, back in 2004 being greeted with a, a wall of abuse for daring to suggest it. But I would say, you know, 10 years on, that I think I've been right. Final question down here. So I, uh, I sympathise with UKIP's concern that you know, our political power has been transferred from Westminster to Brussels, as yep. you claim. But um, I, I seriously am concerned about um, your view of, of leaving the EU because well, I wonder how you can ensure that Britain won't severely miss out on all the benefits of the EU, whether they be, you know, no tariffs when you trade, or, for example. And because although you say we, we'd f- you trade like Switzerland would, we may not reach that sort of level economically and we miss out severely on the benefits of the EU. And I'd also like to mention that the Prime Minister who most successfully negotiated with the EU and uh, reduced their power over Britain was Thatcher and there was no need no. for a referendum then, and so no. why is there a need for a referendum I'm now? sorry, that is wrong. Uh, to say that Mrs Thatcher reduced the EU's power over Britain is simply wrong. 
Uh, what Mrs Thatcher did was to get a reduction in our rebate, which clearly at the time was outrageous. Uh, the truth of the Thatcher years is that despite her hostility to the European Union, which came about not until 87, 88, up until that period of time, Mrs Thatcher had been one of the most enthusiastic supporters for the European project in, uh, and in this country. And actually, you know, you could argue that when the 75 referendum happened, she was the new leader of the Conservative Party, riding on a wave of popularity-stroke curiosity as the first woman leader of a big party in this country. And she played quite a big role in getting a yes vote in the referendum of 75. So it was very late in her career that she turned hostile to it. Um, and as she herself says in her memoirs, you know, one of her great regrets is that far from her getting power back from Brussels, during her time in office, we ceded huge powers, particularly under the Single European Act. So, so you know, uh, that, 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 that is, a, I, I think, a more accurate reflection of, of, of what really happened during her period in time. Look, we, we talked about Turkey with the retired businessman over there. The Turks have access to the market without being members of the Union, as do the Swiss, as do the Norwegians, as do the Mexicans, and as do 50 other countries in the world. You know, t- from the Wall Street crash onwards and post-World War II, there was huge distrust between countries uh, and protectionism you know, was a very popular thing. Uh, and during this period of time, over the last four decades, through GATT and the World Trade Organization, we have seen a revolution in world trade in terms of global trade liberalization on everything except agriculture. All right? I accept that agriculture is different, but on manufactured goods, on widgets, on cars, on washing machines, on whatever it is, uh, global tariffs have come down uh, to, to a very, very small level. I quite understand why my parents 40 years ago voted for us to be part of a common market. But the truth of trade... And the truth of the 21st century world is you do not need to be members of political union to buy and sell widgets from each other. Uh, This happens anyway through business and through markets. And we're stuck inside a project and our politicians are making arguments that were quite appropriate in the 1960s and 1970s but are now, frankly, old hat. And the European Union is a hopelessly, desperately outdated, outmoded project that does not enjoy the support of the British people or the peoples of Europe. And the sooner we bring it to an end and have a Europe where we trade together and cooperate together and are friends together, the better. Oh, sorry, I forgot the European Commission. Sorry. Without the European Commission. Sorry, I forgot that.